EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Europe aims to provide sustainable, affordable and secure energy for its citizens and industries. We in Equinor believe our energy sources and solutions will contribute to the carbon-neutral Europe of the future. I felt hurt and I felt alone. Ich bin weder ein Heiliger noch ein Verbrecher. Mr. President, are you confident that Joe Biden now remembers the importance of France as an ally? We will see. Straßen, die kaputt sind, Brücken, die verloren gegangen sind. Welcome to EU Confidential and to our last episode of 2021. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. The holiday season may be almost upon us, but the news shows no sign of slowing down. As we record, EU leaders are gathering in Brussels to discuss Russia's threats over Ukraine, energy prices, defence policy, migration and, of course, the resurgent coronavirus. Wherever you're listening to us, we hope you're healthy and hanging in there as Europe faces another tough holiday season. As we won't be around for a couple of weeks, we've produced a special bumper episode, which we hope will keep you going over the break. The podcast crew will bring you our selection of key moments from the year gone by as we reflect on a turbulent 2021. And later, we'll discuss a topic that's been mentioned, albeit briefly, on this podcast before, and which seems appropriate for this time of year. The politics of Jesus. But first, your podcast regulars, me, Reem Montaz, Matt Karnichnik, and executive producer Christina Gonzalez did something a bit different this week. We met up virtually with a group of listeners who responded to our invitation for a holiday get-together on Zoom. It was great to see and hear directly from so many of you, and we hope we'll be able to do this in person one of these days. We used the occasion to do a live taping of our panel, looking back at the year and taking some questions from our audience. It was a fun and lively conversation, and here are some of the highlights. So, Matt, we're going to start with you. Uh, we'll play in a little bit of the clip. Sebastian Kurz, the now former uh, Chancellor of Austria. Ich bin weder ein Heiliger noch ein Verbrecher. Ich bin ein Mensch mit Stärken und Schwächen, mit Fehlern und Erfolgen und allem, was sonst noch dazugehört. Matt, you've written about him. You have chronicled um, the rise and fall of the House of Kurz for us uh, over the past year. In fact, longer when we're talking about the rise. And uh, you were in Vienna also for us this year reporting on this. Why did you choose Kurz? Why did you think it was you know, one of the moments of the year? Well, because I think that he's important beyond Austria, that he's important for Europe. And the thing that I love about that clip is that it reminds me in a way, and if there are any Americans uh, here uh, aside from me, they'll remember Nixon, I'm not a crook speech, which this Kurtz clip actually reminded me of, because he's literally saying, you know, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a crook, which people usually say if they are a crook. I'm not saying that he is one. But I thought that that clip, which was just from a couple of weeks ago, was really a nice sort of bookend to his year, you know, after coming out at the beginning of the year, being very optimistic about his prospects, the prospects for his political movement. And a lot of people in Europe were looking to him and uh, to his party for guidance and seeing them really as a model for the European People's Party going forward. And I think one of the, the interesting things about him and about this model that he created 
is whether people will continue to look to that strategy, a very personality-driven strategy, very media-focused strategy, not just for conservative parties, but for all kinds of political parties in Europe, because at the end of the day, uh, it worked. And what tripped him up were these allegations of corruption, and, and those have, have yet to be proven. But what we do know is is still pretty damning, to be honest. But beyond that, I think that he, he was a trailblazer in terms of sort of center-right populism, if you will, although some people would say that you know he did have something of a uh, kind of harder edge than most center-right parties, especially on, on the migration issue, which remains a very emotional and, and potent political issue in Europe. So I think that Kuwitz uh, might be gone, but I think people will still look to him and his party as, as a model. Even if they don't have him to kick around anymore. That's exactly right. There you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> Reem, let's bring in you and um, hear your clip. And ex- maybe you can. This one is very short, actually. So you need to be need to be focused. For once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is this is Emmanuel Macron. As you rarely hear him, extremely concise. Let's let's hear it. Mr. President, are you confident that Joe Biden now remembers the importance of France as an ally? We will see. <laughs> now, that's great. That's our colleague David Herzenhorn, chief Brussels correspondent, who's also sometimes on the podcast, uh, doorstepping Emmanuel Macron, the, the great journalistic art of uh, grabbing someone on their way into something, um, you know, thrusting a recorder or a microphone in front of them and asking them a question. Uh, and very interesting, actually just listening to it there, Reem, it's almost the pause, the silence is almost as powerful as the few words that he uses, right? I mean, maybe unpack that pause for us. What was he trying to kind of communicate with all of that? And, well, I guess we should explain the back, the backstory. What, you know, give us the AUKUS uh, short version, if you like. It was when the Australia, the UK and the US basically got together, did a strategic military uh, alliance of some sort, and uh, basically took from under the feet of uh, France a massive um, deal for military submarines. Clearly, uh, that uh, really angered Emmanuel Macron and France. But so the other thing that you have to also listen to in that clip is that Emmanuel Macron, he's an actor. Theatre is a very important part of his life. And he has that knack. He knows how to play to the camera. And he definitely played up the silence there. He understood that letting that question just hang uh, could have an effect. And then that very concise, short answer. Macron is not known uh, for speaking in short uh, answers. And so here, what he says is very revealing because... It's this expression that exists in, Fran- in, in French. It's called des preuves d'amour. And so it's not just confessing one's love, but proving one's love with one's actions. And so what happened with AUKUS really uh, confirmed all of the suspicions and concerns that the French government had about the direction of U.S. behavior on the international level uh, after four years of very bruising uh, Donald Trump non-diplomacy. And here they were trying to figure out whether the Biden administration would just be an aesthetic change or whether it would be a substantive change and so a return to real consultation, a real uh, taking into account what the allies need and want. And AUKUS proved to them their worst concerns, which is that 
not much had actually changed in substance and that the U.S. would actually blindside them just as it had under Trump, but perhaps without the uh, bizarre tweets that they had gotten used to. Right. I guess that was the that was one of the sort of debates of the year. Is it just a change of tone? Or, or, you know, is this administration just a bit more polite, but it's the same kind of uh, interests uh, underneath? Matt, what, what do you think? And do you think the Europeans were kind of put too much hopes in, in a kind of change with with Biden coming in? Uh, no, I mean, I think they've gotten everything they've wanted. Maybe the French haven't. But when when do the French ever get everything they want? You know, um, when they get well, their way, they do That's quite well. When in they some get way. what they want, when, they, when they, they get they their way, get, they never get their way. And, <laughs> and, and, and they still bitch and moan about everything. Um, you know, there's this famous uh, saying that I often think about here, it, which is, you know, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. And the, the French relationship with the United States just keeps rhyming. And I think if you look at, you know, this relationship and, and you know, Renaissance man Macron, as Reem describes him, you know, all his pettiness over this is very Gallian. You know, Matt, I have to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in here. God knows I'm not soft on Emmanuel Macron. But, I'm not saying you are. You know, if, if you, no, no, but if you take a step back and actually think about how AUKUS was, was handled, there yeah. is something to be said about the fact that, you know, you had three of France's main, most important allies go behind its back, you know, take away a hugely important, financially speaking, contract so for once, I think Emmanuel Macron is actually not being petty. And there is something to his anger. There is something. Well, there is from where he about... sits. And, and, and this is, I think, the disconnect is that because it, and this is why, you know, nobody can really tell the French that, you know what, you don't really matter that much anymore. And this is sort of, I think, the problem is that their perception of themselves is much different than the perception of much of the rest of, of humanity. And, uh, you know, that, that's a problem. <laughs> you because... know, if they did, listen, if, well, they, if actually the spokesman, they didn't... Spokesman for most yeah. of humanity I mean, there. That's I mean, uh, self, quite a step self, up you know, for you. Self-appointed. But more importantly, me of myself. if France didn't matter, <laughs> but it, if France didn't matter, you wouldn't have seen the U.S. and the U.S. administration go to such lengths to actually calm the tantrum that well, was thrown. Exactly. I didn't say that they don't matter. I'm just saying that they don't <laughs> oh, matter as much as they think. Oh, really? I think, I think we might have to we go can, and review yeah, the tape. We the tape. review the tape. Well, yeah. I think the French think that they matter more than other people think. <laughs> well, I think I, I think also I would just add that I think this also said something. It, it probably upset the self-image of the Biden administration or some of the people in it because we heard all this talk of them coming in, being hugely experienced in foreign policy. You know, French-speaking Secretary of State who had even you know gone to high school in France, and you know, in other words, yeah. they would not do practically French. Yeah, almost. Yeah, and and so there was this idea that you know these were kind of Europe's kind of best friends forever, and they were back in the white house and they wouldn't be doing this kind of blindsiding and, and all of that that's kind of how they presented themselves so i think um you know in terms of their own self-image it took a bit of a of a beating over this um let's move to another um soundbite now i'm going to ask christina to nominate the next one uh, just to get a bit of a a brussels focus if you like although this particular incident took place in turkey 
Christina, I don't know if you've got a sound that you can play in. I do. So Emmanuel Macron's soundbite was very short, uh, but mine isn't even a soundbite. I would just say it's literally a sound. And mm. this was the sound that Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, made when she and her counter counterpart, uh, Charles Michel, went to Turkey to meet with uh, Erdogan. And uh, they were to be seated in a room and there were two very stately chairs, both of which were taken by the two men in the room. And she was pretty much relegated to a side sofa. Um, and so I have the sound here. Um, Why do you think that was such a, a significant moment? It caused a huge uh, fuss here in Brussels for, for weeks. Yeah, I think this moment to me was just so Brussels. And I say that because in some ways it's such a, a small thing at the moment where bring yourselves back to April when the EU's vaccine rollout was not going particularly well. There had just been this big diplomatic dust up in Moscow with uh, Joseph Borrell uh, having gone there and not seeming like he was standing up for the EU. Um, and so on the tail of all of that, then we have this Sofagate scandal. And this is what goes on to consume the bubble and beyond for the better part of weeks, because then Ursula von der Leyen appears in the European Parliament, where eventually she goes on to say that the treatment of her in this situation was essentially because she was a woman. I felt hurt and I felt alone as a woman and as a European because it is not about seating arrangements or protocol. This goes to the core of who we are. And this brought up all sorts of new questions about women's rights and gender equality. And then also really, I think, shined a light on the sort of tensions that you see here in Brussels between the two sides of the street, right? Between the Berlemont and between the council. Yeah, it really did. You know, it just seemed to touch a nerve for a lot of people. Reem, I wonder what, what you made of it and what you made of the reaction to it. You know, as you, you know, I, I, I took a break from journalism at some point and was in diplomacy for two years. And, and what I know about diplomacy is that the protocol is super important. And here, to me, from where I stand, it was a, a failure of the protocol of Ursula von der Leyen to make sure that uh, the setup ahead of time made sure that she had a chair uh, if she wanted it. And then she came back. Clearly, her, her team dropped the ball. Uh, and when she came back, it was... It, to my mind, an easy way to come out and say it's sexism. It's not incompetence because sexism has more street cred than incompetence. Mm. Matt, I think you had a, a take on this, which was that a lot of it, was, this was about power, who had it and who didn't. Yeah, I'm still, I'm, I'm shocked to find that, uh, to discover that Reem was a diplomat at one point, but... Um... <laughs> See, diplomacy uh, I isn't think she'd always be, I, yeah. I've got to be honest, yeah. Matt. I think she'd be better suited to it than you. Well, I never, <laughs> I never applied, believe you me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, wise. So, I, you know, I, I can't remember what I wrote about this, but looking back, it, <laughs> it seems like... Listen, I'm the guy year. who probably had, to, I'm the guy had to edit it. I can tell you. I yeah, can tell you what you said. Brilliant. You it basically brilliant. said that Erdogan was kind of playing the two of them off of each other and that this showed he was a guy with power and basically he could do this to the two of them and try and kind of divide and conquer um, safe in the knowledge that there wasn't really going to be any retaliation yeah. or repercussions. Yeah, well, that's one way of looking at it, certainly. But it could have also just been that... You know, they walked into the room. There were only two chairs there and a sofa. And, um, you know, he pointed Michelle in that direction. I mean, it is Turkey after all. Um, 
I don't know. Yeah, but these meetings are never like they're never improvised. They shouldn't that be, way. right? Yeah, they the shouldn't thing, be improvised. It, it, I think it got blown out of proportion a bit by you know all the wokistas in Brussels, if you ask me. But but actually, that's what's interesting is that it reveals, as Christina was saying, given the context we were in in terms of what was really happening in the world, the fact that it consumed Brussels so much, I think, reveals the insecurity about those people's own power in the Brussels ecosystem and in the world. And this is why it became such a huge Brussels story. Exactly. I think it's part of that. I think that also Ursula von der Leyen uh, deliberately chose to make it a story and keep it going. And I wouldn't cl classify her as a wokeista, but I think she saw uh, an opportunity to highlight a broader issue that would strike a chord with a lot of people. And, you know, you might say that whatever you, you stand on the issue as a politician, uh, that showed a quite astute politician, I would say, uh, sometimes. But the other point I would make about that, and it brings it into the, the clip that I've chosen, I'm old enough to remember politics before social media. And I think that the Sofagate and the clip we're about to play both prove or show how much social media has changed politics and changed what becomes a story and what cuts through. Um, those images of Ursula von der Leyen, you know, they're not the images you normally even see uh, in the olden days of, you know, television news bulletins. Someone puts together a package of, you know, the key moments and that's all you see. These are almost like the kind of establishing shots when, when they just come into the room. You wouldn't normally even hear any sound around those. But that clip went viral. The clip became the story in a, in a way that just didn't exist before. And I've chosen a clip that actually combines two um, different big stories of the year. Um, I think we can hear a little bit of it now. I find it very good that the Länder and the Bund very frühzeitig signalized haben, that denjenigen, die vieles verloren haben, die große Verluste erlitten haben, dass ihnen Hilfe zuteil werden soll. So this is Frank Walter Steinmeier, the German president, and he is uh, visiting the area uh, devastated by uh, the floods that hit Western Europe, uh, particularly this part of Western Germany in July. And um, he's giving a very somber uh, speech or, or making an address to TV cameras. So... On one level, you know, we have that story, which was one of the, the stories of the year, obviously. Um, but then we also have what was going on behind Steinmeier, and that is Armin Laschet, at that time, the candidate of the Christian Democrats, Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats, to succeed Merkel as chancellor. And what you can see uh, behind Steinmeier is basically Armin Laschet goofing around, laughing, chuckling, uh, talking to his aides. And I think, Matt, you uh, wrote about this and, and what uh, Laschet apparently was laughing or joking about was a reporter who'd found himself in some kind of awkward position having to kind of lie down or crouch down or something in order to record Steinmeier. But this image, uh, this video, this clip also went viral and really went to the heart of the conclusion that a lot of people drew about Laschet and that he wasn't really serious, he wasn't really ready for high office. And if you look in our poll of polls chart um, for the German general election, 
Uh, one of the, you know, it's rarely this direct, but if you, you can literally draw a line from when uh, that incident took place in July and you can see the CDU, CSU, uh, the conservative camp in Germany kind of falling off a cliff from there. And as we know um, from there, Olaf Scholz went on to lead the Social Democrats to first place in the election and he is now the Chancellor of Germany. And so that was one moment that really crystallized or encapsulated a lot of the problems that that Laschet were ha- was having and and created a much bigger one uh, which he was not able to recover from and i found that quite remarkable matt what did you make of it well I, you know i mean there is this tendency now with hindsight to look at that moment and say well this is where you know the whole thing kind of crashed and burned and I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I think that's where things did start to turn south. But I think the reason that they turned south was that people already had doubts about him. And and that scene just sort of confirmed what a lot of people were feeling anyway. And I wonder, you know, if that hadn't happened, if he would have won. I think he still would have had difficulty, to be honest. I mean, it might not have been as uh, sort of precipitous a decline over the summer, but you know, there was a lot of sort of discussion in in, in the population and uh, in the media here about, you know, whether he was the right guy to take over for Merkel, whether he had the, the, the kind of right stuff, as it were. And I think it's worth also noting that he had other issues as well. Yeah, well, I think, but isn't that often the way that a particular clip kind of encapsulates the doubts that people already have, or it kind of clarifies an image that's already forming yeah, of somebody? Yeah, exactly. But if he had more depth of, as a candidate, he would have been able to overcome that, yeah. I think. And that's yeah. why, like, if you look at uh, Olaf Scholz, who ultimately won, I mean, if you look at the, you know, the headwinds he faced, uh, you know, with all the scandals and everything else, you know, the, the, the public would have a lot more reason objectively to uh, question Olaf Scholz's suitability, given the stuff that came out about him during the campaign, I think, than, uh, and before uh, than, than they did for, for Laschet. And well, those are our moments of the year. And I think now we could um, open it up to all of you and ask you if you would uh, like to ask us any questions um, or nominate a moment of the year of your own. Okay, I think Kirk was first to uh, raise his hand. Yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Kirk. I'm originally from California, but I've been uh, based in the Netherlands for, for quite some time. So, Udo Avond, uh, everyone. I'm fascinated by the European project. And what I would like to say is, so I, I love following the, you know, the day-to-day, the, the week-to-week. And, and I you know, think even the European goings-on that Politico EU uh, covers uh, you know, really well. But... Um, Sometimes I wonder about the bigger picture items. Some of the people have mentioned in the chat about the, the conference on the future of Europe. And I'm really, really curious about the bigger picture items, you know, the, the move towards further European integration, uh, mutual debt sharing, common defense force or strategic autonomy, if you will. How much does it matter for us to focus on these, uh, these bigger picture, longer term uh, questions? Mm. Well, that's certainly the cha- one of the challenges for us, right, as journalists, where we, we do have to cover the day to day and we do cover it, but we also want to, to take a step back. And I think a lot of the things that you're talking about is maybe where is the overall 
direction of travel? Are we moving towards a more federal Europe, you know, uh, something more like the United States of Europe? Or, um, you know, are we going in the opposite direction? Are we kind of treading water? I would say the Conference on the Future of Europe, which we have tried to follow, and we will have more on this, especially as it moves towards a conclusion. I think even among some of its supporters or well-wishers, you know, they are frustrated by it so far and wish that it had a more impact and profile. Obviously, the coronavirus has made that more difficult. It's much more difficult to hold these kind of in-person gatherings. But the timeline was shortened partly because of the res- as a result of old-fashioned EU bickering over who should be in charge of it, which has meant that now the you know they have much less time to think these big thoughts and come up with ideas on the future of Europe. Reem or Matt, I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts there on the overall just direction of travel. I mean, I I definitely feel like if there's one person who's thinking about all of this and and trying to push it forward or perhaps ram it down everyone. It's Emmanuel Macron. (laughs) Ram it down. You you get a gold star, Matt. Yeah, well done. Um, You know, if you you listen to his press conference on Thursday, revealing his priorities for for his presidency of the Council of the EU, clearly he was talking about more integration. I had the big pleasure. You're saving it for the holidays, Matt? Absolutely. Great listen. Three hours. He clearly has all of this in mind, and it's clearly the top of his agenda for the next six months, two months, however you want to look at his presidency, the Council of the EU, colliding with his definite run for re-election. So he wants more fiscal integration. He wants more common debt, which obviously are big no-nos for Germany and the Netherlands and Denmark. And, And I wonder really if the Germans are now kind of biting their nails and regretting having gone with the recovery fund and saying over and over again last year, this is a one-off thing. And Macron, his head was thinking, this is a precedent-setting thing and I'm going to build on it. But, you know, he, he thinks that such a huge edifice is actually built stone by stone. So he is trying to lay as many bricks into that wall as possible before he either gets reelected and then he, I think he's going to come back with a vengeance on all of these issues for his next term. Or if he's not reelected, he'll feel like he would have at least put down some of the foundations. Matt, what do you think? Do you think and in particular, do you think the new German government is more willing to play ball with Emmanuel Macron, some of this stuff? Uh, yes, definitely. I do think that they are both Schultz and, and the Greens, certainly. And uh, even, even the FDP, and we, we've seen over the past couple of days how flexible the FDP leader uh, has has become on all kinds of fronts. So, you know, I wouldn't rule that out. I do think, as we pointed out last year in this program, and, and there are quotes of the year, which I was just reminded of today, mine was about the recovery fund and that that was a seminal moment. And I, I, I stand by that. I think, you know, looking back this year, you know, one can't sort of overstate the the importance of that step. And I think that the Germans will continue to move in that direction. But I think, you know, that there's a disconnect between things like the formats that you see, the the Conference on the Future of Europe and so forth, and where these decisions are really made, you know. And I, I think that they are made, and recent history has sort of shown this, at times of crisis. Okay. I see uh, Charlotte or Charlotte, uh, so I'm going to give the floor to to you. Hi, thank you. Yes, I'm Charlotte uh, or Charlotte, um, Charlotte, depending on what language you're speaking. And I'm currently based in Dresden and studying there. It's Christmas soon. We'll meet uh, our relatives who might be of the same political opinion as we are, but might, due to generational divides, also have quite an opposing point of view. 
than we do. And that actually uh, reminds me of federal president Steinmeier who said just at Christmas three years ago that we need to learn how to argue again. And that kind of leads me to the question on what you would advise your listeners to do this Christmas if they meet their relatives um, questioning European integration, the European project as a whole. Um, to what extent should we take into account Euroscepticism in the future development of Europe? And when is it actually okay to just say that they yeah, might be just a minority opinion? I think that's a really interesting question, uh, you know, about how you broach politics uh, with family, particularly over the holiday season. Yeah, or whether it's just best avoided altogether. Um, Matt, do you have any? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I'm, I'm just, um, just imagining a Karnitschnik Christmas. It's a lot of alcohol. Uh, you involved. know, is that is that a, is that a harmonious affair? I mean, what are no, you? No, it's tips not harmonious for? at all. I'm not really. Yeah. I don't know why I'm coming yeah. to you for tips about how to have a you know harmonious discussion. But you know, give it your best shot. There's a lot of schnapps involved. I can tell uh -huh. you that. And, yeah, uh, you know, I would take it with a bit of humor. I mean, I think, you know, that's how you can kind of bridge differences. I've got a lot of leftists in my family. This will uh, surprise you. And, uh, you know, a lot of sort of died in the wool Europhiles. So fortunately, my, my father-in-law actually, it, back in the 90s, uh, when they voted, they had a referendum in Austria about whether Austria should join the EU. And uh, God bless him, he voted against uh, membership. Wow. Uh, On what yeah. basis? Well, he just wanted things to stay the same, wanted Austria to remain independent, uh, hmm. which, uh, which you know, I can understand. Uh, okay. But now once you're in, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. But, you know, he was also a, ra <laughs> a rabid supporter of Sebastian Kurz uh, until yeah. recently. So uh, we, we have a lot of... Wow. Uh, did you, did you send him some of your articles? Oh, yeah. Maybe, oh, yeah. Maybe oh, yeah. in the House of Kurtz edition of the <laughs> for, newspaper. Sure, you loved that. For a while, we yeah. couldn't talk about Kurtz. It was a little too uh, too. Dicey. Right, there you go. There Are there subjects yeah. that are off the table? Reem, um, you know, you come originally from Lebanon, where a lot of things, you know, the politics is, you know, can be highly polarized without wanting to, you know, uh, go into cliche. How do, you, what, how do you deal with it? I mean, I think in Lebanon... Well, at least in my family, there isn't, I think everyone's pretty much in agreement, more or less. On the same page? Uh, because because mm. the stakes are so existential in many ways. But um, I have to say, recently and currently, uh, without going into too much detail, I am in France, I cover the French presidential election, I have family here, and the current political debate in France in the context of the French presidential election has been uh, extremely, how should I say it, sometimes shocking, sometimes uh, quite belligerent. And uh, some of the ideas that are being put out there are quite extreme. You know, there's there's one very far-right candidate who is uh, doing very well in the polls, another far-right candidate. Emmanuel Macron. <laughs> well, you need to be... Uh, reading... I thought you would have him down as a radical you, you leftist. You need to read man. more of our coverage, Matt. Um, yeah. And it's certainly leading to uh, a lot of very heated conversations, for sure, uh, because France seems to be having quite an existential moment when it comes to its perception of its place in the world, whether it's in decline or not, whether it should be cosmopolitan or not. Uh, what French culture is, what French history is, all of this is actually in play right now. And you can imagine that 
French people who, you know, I, I have French family, have very, uh, very real uh, <laughs> and strong opinions about all of this. And it, it is definitely leading to, to some very heated debates. But I think, you know, the, perhaps, and I, I'm no expert on this, but perhaps the way I've been dealing with it is just to try to keep an open mind, even when you don't agree with what the other person is saying. And even if it makes you super angry, <laughs> try to think, okay, why does this person think this way? And ask them to elaborate and explain and articulate why they think that is the right way to think about things. And sometimes it leads to some breakthroughs where you discover that there's more common ground than there is. And sometimes you can just agree to disagree and yell at each other for five minutes and then move on. I mean, that's also okay, a possibility. Much as, much as we do on this podcast uh, sometimes. Exactly. another bottle of wine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much as some people do on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks again to you all for joining us from around the world. Now, right after this short break, as we head into the Christmas season, we talk politics and religion. What could possibly go wrong? Stay with us. A message from Equinor. As Europe greens its economy, we in Equinor are ready to support ambitious targets. Partnering with European industry for large-scale decarbonisation in hard-to-abate sectors by means of clean and low-carbon hydrogen is one of our answers to the European energy transition. Our H2H Solten project in the UK that is planned to produce hydrogen at scale can play a leading role in the UK's journey to net zero by 2050 renew the UK's largest industrial cluster, and unlock technology that will put the UK at the forefront of a global hydrogen economy. We in Equinor hope continental Europe will follow the UK with the same determination. So regular listeners to the podcast may recall we had a conversation a while back with our reporter Lily Beyer about the Hungarian opposition candidate for Prime Minister, Peter Makizai. And uh, Lily had been at a rally of his and she mentioned in passing uh, that Makizai had made a remark to try to reassure uh, left-wingers because he's a conservative that he could be a candidate for them too in the upcoming general election. At one point in that rally, and this got some laughs, he was saying that even, um, you know, that voters should be reassured because Jesus Christ was a left-wing person as well. Now, uh, that remark uh, was heard by our editor-in-chief, Jamil Anderlini, and it got him thinking about whether we might be able to do something about uh, the politics of Jesus, whether he could be placed in that spectrum as a left-winger or right-winger or or anything else that we would understand from from modern political terms. And the person charged with uh, going after this question was our own uh, senior EU reporter, Jacopo Baragazzi, who joins us now. Hi, Jacopo. Hi, Andrew. Maybe just before we get started, you talked to a number of people for this piece that you've written, which will be in our newspaper that people can see around Brussels and also read online. And we've got some clips from one of those people that you talked to. Just tell us who you spoke to, who we might hear from while you and I are discussing this. I spoke to uh, Manuel Enrique Barroso Pieto, who is the Secretary General of the Comissaire, that's the French name of the EU Catholic Church Bishops' Conference in Brussels. Jesus cannot be seen as a political leader or as a philosophical teacher or 
Jesus had a very clear message, a message on the kingdom of God, a religious message that has political and social implications. And the social and political implications are very clear. Uh, the preference for the poor, a preference for the vulnerable, avoid the use or the abuse of power, justice. So it's a message that is a religious message, but with political and social implications. Then uh, I spoke to a Vatican analyst who actually wrote a recent book on uh, the, the use of uh, Christianity, especially by the populist uh, and uh, the far right. Then uh, I spoke to a philosopher and then to uh, diplomats and MPs. Uh, and, so, and one of the outcomes is that uh, we can't really apply categories like left or, wrong or right to a figure like Jesus. Right. And why not, I guess, is the question. So in other words, in in that central question, which you asked, you know, is he on the right or the left? Um, it sounds like certainly your uh, interviewee from the Catholic Bishops Conference felt that he couldn't be categorized in that way. These are categories that cannot be used for Jesus, in part because they are new categories, the categories of the last centuries. And Jesus lived 2000 years ago in a very different cultural context with different religious groups. He took positions in, before these religious groups. So these categories cannot be applied to Jesus. I would say the other way is the right way, to let Jesus, his figure, and his message question our categories of left and right. Huh? So in one sense, Jesus was very favorable to freedom. In another sense, he was he defended life. He defended. He had a very clear position on the family. He had also a clear position on the poor and on helping the poor, and of teaching about a father that is merciful and cares and pardons and always forgives. So Jesus transcends the categories of left and right. This is one of the few points on which uh, everybody agreed that these are categories that uh, are very recent because they are born with the French Revolution, so at the end uh, of the 18th century, and so can't really apply to a figure like Jesus. Yeah, and, and, and we obviously know and we hear from time to time that, you know, politicians and both on both the left and the right have tried to take inspiration or claim that, if you like, God is on their side or, or Jesus is on their side. But most recently, I think what we've seen in Europe and one of the things you get into is that Christianity has been taken as a kind of inspiration or a touchstone, not just for the traditional centre-right in Europe, the Christian Democrats, where, you know, obviously the clue is in the name, but more recently also by the far-right populists, you know, people, for example, like Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban or the presidential candidate in France, Eric Zemmour. Why, Jacopo, do you think they in particular are kind of trying to tap into Christianity and to religion? What do the people that you spoke to think is behind that kind of messaging? But the answer I got is that uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, um, after the financial crisis and after the migration crisis, there is a, a part of voters that uh, needed to find some kind of reassurances. And here is where uh, the, the element of the populist or uh, the far right uh, comes into the picture. 
they start using increasingly uh, religion to send a message of nostalgia, basically. Nostalgia for a world where there were uh, no gays, no Muslims, no European Union. This message doesn't really reflect any kind of uh, comeback of religion. Uh, I mean, their voters are secular, and uh, and many of these uh, political characters don't really embody uh, Christian values also from the point of view of their lives. I mean, in the US, Trump is divorced. Uh, Salvini is also divorced. But this, uh, obviously, opens a, a direct conflict with the Catholic Church. Uh, because here in the story, we are focused mainly on the Catholic Church. In, in Europe, it uh, doesn't mean that everybody is a Catholic at, at all. The North is Protestant, uh, and uh, Eastern Europe uh, is often uh, Orthodox. But here we are focused on uh, the Catholic Church also because of the direct clash that these uh, has triggered with the Church. I mean, just take uh, the word pontifex in Latin means bridge builder. So the conflict with the walls builder, it's uh, already in the world. That is the title of the Pope. Mm. And, and this means that uh, this Pope has increasingly been vocal against the use of uh, Christianity, against the Muslims, against the gays, against the migrants. And in the story, I quote the current Secretary of State of the Catholic Church, uh, Cardinale Parolin, who says uh, that you can't treat religion as a supermarket. But this applies to both, the left and the right. Because the right cannot take only the anti-abortion, pro-life, pro-Christian value side and leave aside the pro-migration side. As the left cannot take only the pro-migration side and drop the anti-abortion side. Mm. So in a sense, the, the Catholic Church in particular, although it to a large extent tries to stay at least at a high level out of party politics, has kind of issues with both the left and the right. It actually does not you know, fully subscribe to either. It, you might see it more on the left in the migration debate, but, but more on the right in terms exactly. of some of these other social issues. Exactly. The Catholic Church doesn't want anymore even a party that thinks to fully represent the Christian values. Well, I don't see no political party now in the European context that defends or that is completely 100% compatible with Christian values. I don't think this is either, this is possible, uh, because there's a difference to be kept between the political sphere and the religious sphere. And on my point of view, this is not even desirable. What I think is necessary is to have politicians inspired by Christian values that uh, put forward policies inspired by these values. This is what we need. Huh? And these politicians can be in different political parties. Okay, well, we thank you very much for your efforts, for your investigation to, to try and answer this question. And I guess the, the sort of bottom line is that people should probably decide on, you know, their choice of vote, wherever it may be in Europe, on the basis of, you know, the policies rather than trying to figure out whether... Jesus was on their side or somebody else's. Is that a fair conclusion? Uh, it seems so. It's very much in line with the predicament of the Enlightenment, which is a think with your own head, you know. And uh, and so from this point of view, I like to have a, a conclusion that is in line with the Enlightenment. <laughs> okay, Jacopo, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this episode and for this year. We'll be back with a brand new episode the first week in January. But in the meantime, if you find yourself missing the podcast crew over the next few weeks, 
you can always go back through our catalogue of episodes, all 230 of them. Hopefully you'll find something to enjoy there. And remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas for guests or topics anytime. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. And finally, if there's one gift we could ask for, it would be a nice rating or even a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks to Lucas Kotkamp for all his hard work on the podcast over the last few months. Also thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening, not just this time, but at any time over the past year. The podcast is, of course, all about politics. It's about news, analysis and interviews. But at the risk of sounding corny, and if you can't sound corny at Christmas, then when can you? Podcasts are also about a connection with the listener, about companionship. Something I would guess we've all needed over the past 12 months. And if we've managed to provide some of that to you this year, we're pretty happy with our lot. From all of us at Political Europe, hope you have the best holiday you possibly can and talk to you next year. 